back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And yes, this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs and leaders despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And as our listeners know, we love to have people on our show that have varied backgrounds that don't maybe have the typical path. Today on the show, we have David Chang, and we actually had almost the inverse paths. Like they, they started off very similar, and then we switched places. To give you guys a little bit of context, David Chang is the CEO of Gratify. He has an incredible background. He's uh, invested as an angel investor in over 40 companies. He's had leadership roles at companies that you've definitely heard of, like PayPal. I think you were the first product guy at TripAdvisor. I was, I back in the day. And we all use TripAdvisor all the time. You started your career off at Goldman Sachs. You came from Cornell as a CS dude. And we actually started off in computer science too and got your MBA from Harvard Business School and actually ended up being an entrepreneur in residence at HBS in your recent years, right? Could not leave. Yep, still there. Clearly you loved it. And funny enough, now it sounds like you almost made a full circle back and what you're doing with Gratify is really helping people that are out of college that might have student debt and you're helping them relieve that debt by partnering with employers, correct? It, it is. The student student debt problem has just skyrocketed over the last couple of years. And it's basically just a privilege for us to be able to help out employees of these employers. Exactly. And so if you listen to the show, you'll know that we care about this topic a lot as well. But let's start at the very beginning a little bit. Me and Sergey, we were in Boston for four years after college. We went to school right outside of Boston. We grew up in the Boston entrepreneurial ecosystem. We got our battle scars there. And you actually grew up in the ecosystem here in New York City. And at some point, I know you made the move to New York and we made the move to Boston. And I remember I heard somewhere that when you moved to Boston, you first thought that uh, you'd be there for a couple of years and probably move back, right? 100% thought it was going to be a two year thing. We also thought New York might be, we always wanted to live in New York. So we thought, okay, this is gonna be like a five year thing. But our families in Boston, we're probably gonna move back. and. All of us have respectively stayed. You've been in Boston, what, 17 years? Uh, coming up on 20 now. Whoa, yeah, 20, okay. 20 years. So I think I'm done. Maybe <laughs> up there. I think you're there for the long haul. Uh, and Sergey and I have been in New York City for seven years. So clearly, we've each of us have fallen in love with the ecosystems. And, and um, I'll never say we'll never be back in Boston, but we definitely love it here in New York, and you love it back in Boston. But what's funny is actually how we met. Our listeners probably know, because I've said it a few times, again, we, we care about the student debt issue. We care about entrepreneurs. We want to make entrepreneurship more accessible. Really, we want to make creating something out of nothing more accessible, helping people realize that you can do it, that you can pursue your passions and your interests, whether they're entrepreneurial or otherwise. Uh, and we decided to write this article in Harvard Business Review uh, about how this student debt issue uh, $1.5 trillion, which still boggles my mind, $500 billion more than all the credit card debt in this country. Insane. Exactly. And, it, and it's affecting people in tangible ways. Uh, people, actually, a lot of them are not starting companies. Part of my reason for even getting to write this article was I wanted to learn more about this problem. And what better way to do it than dig into the data when you know Harvard Business Review is going to be really scrutinizing you for all the data points and making sure that you back everything up That's 10 right. times over That's right. uh, and make sure that you're credible. But uh, I wrote the article. I in my research, came across you, David, and I've been aware of you in the past, but I didn't realize that you were now uh, running Gratify. 
And I read your piece on Xconomy, and I was like, oh, this is incredibly relevant. I want to mention you in the article. And of course, what ended up happening is I think uh, somebody, a PR company that you work with or that Gratify works with, reached out and got us in touch, which I'm really glad they did because now we get to have this conversation. Yeah, and I can't believe it's taken this long to actually make that connection. The, you're totally right. Like, we came from different places, but I think in the bizarro world, we would have been living each other's lives, right? Seriously. It was like every single turn where you made a left, I made the right. But, you know, we both, all three of us, turned out okay. So exactly. it's probably fine. And and even to the point where you weren't, were you born here or no? Your parents are immigrants. No, I wasn't. I was, I was born in Taiwan, moved to New York when I was three years old, mm-hmm. lived in a little place in Flushing, and it was... Very first memory in life was my sister being born at some hospital in Flushing. So yeah. that's the, the first memory in life. Exactly. And we're immigrants as well. Uh, we, were, we were born in Belarus, came here a little later when we were eight. Uh, but a ton of overlaps in our stories. Yeah. We even had our start. You started off in finance. We started off in finance. You were on the tech side, but securities lending, we were just talking about earlier. There's like 10 people in the industry, right? There's, there's <laughs> no one's going to know no what that idea. is. Uh, but we both started our careers in this really niche area. But you ended up now in this field and specifically helping solve the student debt issue. And you had a really cool last three years. You were entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School. You helped uh, run the program at Babson as well. And, and you've been angel investing. So you've been doing all sorts of things, wearing many hats. But you decided to start wearing one hat again and really tackle this problem. I mean, did you ever think that full circle you were going to like develop this passion about this problem? I, I, I did not. I think it's the, the long path of coming back to where your heart actually is. The last couple years have spent firsthand work with students and seeing what the challenges they have, the choices they make coming out of school, doing some of the consulting, advising, and angel investing. It was all related to this whole ecosystem. And so joining Gratify was a bit of a no-brainer, not only from the big mission perspective, as you mentioned, $1.5 trillion worth of debt. It's actually closer to 1.6. I think every year goes up by a little bit. And so it just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then for me, it was a great fit because one, I'd done work in finance, two, I'm a technology person, and three, just the industry that it's in, it was like a perfect confluence of a handful of stuff that I've done in the past. And then you wrap all that together, it's actually a huge market problem to solve. And so if we get it right, the whole next generation is going to benefit from it. You know, that it, it kind of boggles my mind that for some reason, this is such a growing problem, yet politicians have not been able to solve it, and it takes private companies and private individuals. I mean, we just saw in the news a couple days ago, a billionaire yeah. is, is going to uh, solve a lot of the debt of the graduating class. I think it was Morehouse uh, College. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is crazy that it's taking private institutions. I mean, I think it's a good thing that we're standing up. But you've seen, you've been mentoring entrepreneurs coming out of college that are actually starting companies, even though many of them maybe do have college loans. Are, are you seeing a difference between the kind of people that end up taking that entrepreneurial risk and not? Like, do they just happen to have less of a debt burden or do they have a cushion to fall back on that they're saying, you know what, I'm going to graduate and actually pursue this crazy thing that could bankrupt me completely, even though I'm going to have 300 to $500 of student debt to pay off every month? What is, what's the difference between those people and the people that are not starting companies? Yeah, I don't know if I've done a formal cohort analysis, but just maybe to stick this into a two-by-two, two, there's on one axis, it's whether or not you have debt or don't have significant debt that changes your choices. And then the other side is whether or not you want to start a company right at this moment. So the ideal world is you have no debt and you want to start it right now. And so we see a ton of those people. And so regardless of where things are in the industry, those people will start companies, right? Those are a lot of the folks that you run into every single day. 
the the toughest category are folks that they have debt they think they may want to start a company in the future but not right now and they almost always join a big company like my first job coming out of school Goldman Sachs right I never thought I would actually be a founder or an entrepreneur I'm sort of an accidental entrepreneur and just kind of stepped into it but coming out of school 22 years old that was not me I think what's interesting is that as you, as you run into people that they're super driven to start a company but they have this debt you see every single day they they try to figure out can I make it work how can I s- scrap things together should I just take a part-time job maybe I'll take a job but then do this on the side and so that's really interesting and then there's that other category I guess to fill out the the, the two by two of people they don't have debt but they do want to start that company and so th- there's some interesting choices that they end up making and so when you run into students I think it falls into this like entirely different spectrum. And then when you kind of peg them in one of those boxes, then you know how to really help them out. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's never completely easy, let's face it. Entrepreneurship yeah. is hard, and so there's going to be some obstacles. But in the work that you do and in the work that we've done in even analyzing this problem, I think I've gotten the sentiment that it just feels harder now, or at least it feels riskier. Do you think that people just generally have less support? I mean, clearly what Gratify is doing is partnering with companies that actually care about helping people solve this problem. But why isn't everybody doing this? Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess there's really two different topics in there. So there's one, the it's a massive problem. Seven out of 10 students when they graduate today have debt. The debt is nearly $30,000 on average, and that's just continuing to grow. We work with companies today over 750 of them which is about twice as many from the year before so that's continuing to grow we work with these employers to set up these benefit programs that enable them to contribute to paying down some of the student debt also to help them figure out whether or not they have a refinance option to save money or if you're like me i'm fortunate i don't have debt but i'm saving up for college for my kid having a 529 plan and so gratify goes in and works with these employers to set up these benefits to enable them to save up for college, pay down debt, and refinance. And so that's a whole sphere of benefits that we have around that. I think a lot of the, f- the people that you run into these days where they may not even join that company in the first place, and in any other time, they probably would have started the company. But now, because of this crushing debt, they have to make suboptimal choices. I think that's where I think you guys can help out the most. And and a lot of what's happening in the New York tech system and the Boston tech ecosystem is that you have these players, whether accelerators or funds, like, there's a ton of help. And so although it may be harder given the finances, I think there are more resources than there have ever been before. So actually, that makes me wonder, when, when you were coming out of college and when you made the decision to join Goldman Sachs, at that point, did you ever think about starting your own thing? Were people around you starting companies, or was it more, eh, I'm just going to... No, no, this was in the 90s, yep. and I actually did have a consulting firm that I that I started when I was in school, but the intent was never to be a full-time entrepreneur, right? It was the kind of thing where I developed a little bit of software for these little companies. Uh, I somehow had Citibank as like one of my customers, which I don't know how that happened, but... Do you really not yeah. know? Now I'm curious. I, <laughs> I, I don't actually remember. I think my high school job was using PageMaker at a print shop to do this funky thing where we use digital to create resumes and brochures. And somehow the 
guy that owned the print shop was like, hey, you know what? You can write some software. Let's do some stuff together. So I think he actually had Citibank as, as, as like a print customer somehow mm. and then weaseled our way into, oh, you know, we'll write some software for you. And so, yes, yeah, Citibank was one of, <laughs> wow. one, of the, one of the customers at the time. But the, um, the intent was never to create a company. And so created a company, kind of you know, made a little bit of money off of it, maybe reluctantly did the, did the taxes and did you know, create this company. But when I graduated, I really wanted a big brand name. I wanted you know, paycheck from a big company. And so that was my intent at the time. So, you know, I remember reading something about you that, and you just mentioned you were a, an accidental entrepreneur, but you actually ended up starting a company the same weekend that you had your child. Yes. So what Poor did it choices. take, which is crazy to me, I don't think I would be able to do that. What did it take for you personally, for your mental state, for your time in your life and your career, for you to be able to tell yourself, okay, I'm comfortable with taking this risk right now. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite the weekend. So yes, quit a full time paying job that had been acquired. So we were uh, this company out of Boston called M Cube got acquired by Verisign. Did you have stock in that company? I did. I did have Great. a little little bit of stock in that company and ended up quitting. And then on the next day had our daughter. And so it was quite quite the weekend. It was not planned that way. I don't know why we did it that way, but perhaps I guess if it rains and pours and you, you do it all at once. And um, and on the, I guess maybe on the flip side, when I left PayPal, uh, it was the same day that my wife also quit a full-time job. And so I don't know what we were thinking, but on the very same day on February 6th, a couple of years ago, each of us also were unemployed. We're like, okay, we're done. And, and, uh, and so somehow we managed to make it work. I'm curious though, even though it kind of happened accidentally, why do you think at that point you were personally ready? Was it the network that you had? You had a cushion to fall back on? I'm just trying to think through someone that's in their career and they're telling themselves, I want to start something, but I don't know when, I don't know what, and you know, maybe it's too risky. What made you personally ready? Yeah, I, th I think at the time I had this job, it was a super interesting role that I had. And at VeriSign, it got to the point where when I was looking at other things to do next, one of the folks that I met was someone that was working on creating a content directory for mobile uh, ringtones and wallpapers. And at the time, we thought it was going to be this really big thing. And so the, the natural fit was it was taking stuff that I immediately knew, combining it with things that I had learned at TripAdvisor. And so it was almost this this take these two businesses and merge them together with one. And I was, I did not want to leave that job right away, but it was one of those opportunities where I was able to de-risk it by quite a bit. So there was a little bit of funding in for just paying one of the co-founder's salaries. It was like $100,000 in the company, right? And so he had, a, he had a couple kids. He couldn't take something that was completely unpaid. And so when I jumped on board, they put another 150, and so it was essentially just to write the business plan, and then we from had to an go From an angel, or what, what was it from? Who was it was it from? a venture firm, Northbridge Ventures. Yeah. Okay, got it. So there was already a network there where they felt like they could take a chance on somebody with an idea. Yes, and so from their standpoint, even though they're Series A investors, they were willing to write this 100K check to basically option value, right? That, all right, it may pay for a couple salaries kind of thing, but we want you to flush out this idea, and by doing so, 
let's see if there's real business behind it. And so we got that funded a couple months later. But by the way, though, I'm sure, you know, it was a calculated decision by them because they saw an opportunity in the space that you were uh, working in and they were getting two domain experts. I mean, you had built it up a career and you just said that you, you were working on something that had overlap in TripAdvisor, right? Yeah, it, it, it was. The, the whole idea was essentially taking some of the mobile content and taking the user-generated content that, that we learned at TripAdvisor, how to manage for that, and then combining those things. And our bet was that mobile content was going to explode. Now, come the iPhone, come all free media, like that whole business just didn't exist. And so we actually ended up uh, rewriting the business plan and pivoting a month after we got got our funding. And so that, that was, a, <laughs> was a quick 30 days. Like, okay. you know what, there's, there's really nothing behind this. So uh, What did the investor think of that? Did they support the pivot? They they did. And so the original idea was to just create this directory. And then when we saw that people were snapping photos and, and using free media, we're like, all right, let's change this company altogether. And so within the month, I, I remember this was May when we got funded. By June, we're like, you know what? This, this is a bad idea. Hmm. So let's do something else. And so we immediately pivoted the company over to essentially a mobile photo sharing site. Interesting. And uh, how much money did you guys end up raising overall? Yeah, we ended up raising about seven and a half million. Couldn't get it to couldn't get it to work, and so this was what we like to describe as Instagram before Instagram. Mm. And all the competitors that we had at the time, we all kind of had similar things where we just couldn't figure out how to monetize. And we ended up in a place where we had users from every single country in the world using the product, sharing photos, and and it was awesome to see that momentum, but we just could not monetize that, and we couldn't paint a legitimate path to monetizing it. And so we ended up having to sell the company pennies on the dollar, and it was you know great learning experience from my standpoint, maybe not so thrilling from the venture standpoint, but you know you got to have some failures in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we recently did an episode called How to Capitalize on Your Failures, and me and Sergey talked about a couple, <laughs> several of the ones that uh, we had. I mean, in college, we sold our car for five grand, and mm-hmm. Uh, put it into a product that engineers built and we didn't know it was, we, we were not good product managers at 19 years old yeah. put it that and, way. and what was the biggest thing you learned from that talk to customers early and get some pre-sales yeah yeah uh, because yeah. we had some users uh, it was a marketplace we had some users on on one side but we needed companies because it was an advertising product yeah to actually support those users and i mean we just spent way too much time dreaming and thinking about the product and building features and not enough time getting customers and validating any of it but yeah. We had no blueprint back yeah, then. Yeah, and, and maybe that's a lesson for your listeners, right? Like that's something that you will probably never make that mistake again. And one of the mistakes we made at that same company was that we pivoted back and forth between the use case of share photos of my kid with close relatives, which is super private, and share anything I see openly with the world, mm-hmm. right? And so our feature set, we went back and forth on, oh, it would be cool if you had this like auto trigger that sent it to one person. Oh, you know what? No, you want to discover everything. And so going back and forth like that, we just, you know, we dropped the ball on that. And so that's a mistake I will not make again. Do you think that experience made you a better investor? I do. I do because I see some of that with founders and the chasing the shiny thing. Like you it, you got to know when to pivot, you got to know when to focus, and it's it's more art than science. And so seeing sometimes when a founder has that challenge, I'm able to hopefully help out a little bit like hey, don't repeat the same mistake that I made. Well, that's interesting actually. I want to touch touch on that a little bit in in your investing experience because 
you know, angel investing, um, maybe unlike a professional venture fund, it's typically done more on an emotional level and more on a, hey, how can I be helpful to this person? You know, there's, there's probably a lot of things that play into making a decision to make an investment, but it's probably less thesis-driven or formula-driven than a venture fund. So having been a startup founder yourself and having worked alongside such successful CEOs and founders, when you look at investments, what gives you that feeling in the gut that makes you want to say, I'm going to put my own hard-earned money at, in this company? Yeah, no, you, you're, you're totally right. It's, it's less thesis-driven, so I don't have to map that back to, a, oh, does this fit some sort of framework or criteria? I do find that most of the investors or angel investors that I speak to, they, they're on this spectrum from, from the, I run this like a business and I'm a super professional, um, uh, and this is what I do. It just happens to be my own money kind of thing. And there's only a handful of those kind of angel investors. They're very methodical. Uh, they basically are like a really early stage seed fund. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have philanthropists, right? Like they just they they care about a cause and they're just putting in there. Most people that I know are not either those two, right? And so the the way the angel investors usually they get one of two things: either it's an opportunity for them to dig in deeper in an industry where they have some sort of knowledge and so it helps them keep them fresh it's like oh cool i can i can um make some connections and so there's some interesting um dynamic there and they get a lot out of it right they they get plugged in they get keep on top of the latest technologies that's one category that's one category and I, i tend to do that a lot so that's maybe your head kind of thing and then the other category is i see that if there's a, a very specific area of expertise where you just know how to build, let's just say, product, and you're a direct-to-consumer guru and you just know the tactics, um, if you find a business, even if it's another industry where you may have no real context and contacts, that you can be super helpful, right? And so that industry expertise, that functional expertise, is another area where I see angel investors. And so for me, I tend to make investments when it's either one of those two things. Now, of course, it has to be great, great idea. Uh, the founders have to be compelling and all that. But on the bubble, those those will push it over for me if it has one of those two things. Yeah, I, I work with a couple of venture funds and I advise entrepreneurs as well. And for me. It's somewhat similar. I mean, the idea, obviously, I have, to, I have to be excited about. But if I'm meeting with them week after week or month after month, whatever the frequency is, and I'm seeing that the entrepreneur is calibrating all the advice they're getting and actually putting it to action yeah. and making moving the needle forward somehow, that is what actually excites me. Because too many people talk and don't actually do the work. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and those data points is, is exactly what we see is effective. And so when you have a founder that says something and then later on they're able to either deliver on it, it shows a couple things. It, knows, it shows that they're, they're following through. It shows iteration velocity. It shows that they know how to set expectations. And by doing so as a potential investor, now you're starting to get these data points, which then you can extrapolate. And so that's actually advice that, that I often give to founders when they're fundraising don't just go out there. You want to set this this bar, and you want to create a way for an investor to, to connect the dots for that person. And so if you can do exactly that, then they're like, oh, fantastic. At some point, you're going to come in when you have your ask, and they'll be ready to invest. So what about timing? And you know, what, one thing I want to ask you is actually why do companies – that I know we're kind of jumping all over the place here, but that this is really I'm really curious about this because everybody has their own trajectory. Everybody starts companies or something creative in their own time whenever they feel like they're ready. But I feel like by companies supporting people, by helping them pay off their debt, you're actually increasing optionality for those people to choose 
either a career or something that is more right for them because you're removing a little bit of that burden. But I'm actually curious, why do companies care about paying off their employees' debt? How do you guys convince people to actually use your product? Yeah, yeah. So on, yeah, on the Gratify side, what we're seeing is that when we talk to an employer, they're looking for one of two things, either a way to attract employees or a way to retain the existing ones that they have. And so on the attraction side, it's a hyper-competitive job market. We work with employers when they set up this benefit for a millennial that comes in. If you ask the typical millennial what they value out of a job, right? They, they want to get income. They want to have good work, uh, quality of life balance. And the benefits around what they can get out of the company, this is one of the top things, right? So if you talk to any recent graduate, they're, their majority of them are burdened by this. And so it is definitely a factor that is a differentiator and makes one employer more attractive than the other. And then we are seeing it for some of our customers, now that one does it in the industry, their competitors are starting to do that, right? And that makes sense. It's like, you know, law firm A offers this and law firm B, everything else the same, but they don't offer this, then okay, now there's a difference. So that's one way that uh, our employers benefit. And the other is we work with a handful of employers where they're really trying to retain people. So a few of them have really highly trained professionals that have massive debt. So think like nurses, right? Occupational therapists, 150, $200,000 worth of debt, and they really need to pay it off. And so some of these employers essentially set up these programs where the longer you stay, the more that you get. And so that's another way. And so the, the interesting thing here is that because it affects most people today, you can pretty much figure out a way to design a benefit that works for those employees. You know, and I think the thing that makes me so excited about this is, I mean, of course, for some employers, retention is the main thing and that's what they care about. And that's why they're going to buy the, this product or service. And for others, it's the attraction piece of it. And I think actually your career is a testament to the fact that as a company, you can attract people that are very entrepreneurial and actually encourage that kind of entrepreneurial thinking. In fact, one of the articles that we wrote on HBR before this is how to encourage entrepreneurial thinking on yeah, your I team. Yeah, I saw that. That was a good one. Yeah, and, and you shouldn't be afraid to attract entrepreneurial people because you never know how it's going to come full circle. And, and again, your career going from, from some of these companies that are have turned out to be massive companies where now people have spun out of those companies and started out of the companies. People between companies have invested in each other. I'm sure some of these companies have acquired companies that then those employees ended up starting. Happens a lot, yeah. And it's so cool. And I feel like by offering a way to pay off people's debt that work for you, you're actually giving them more options to pursue things that their brains otherwise just would not go because that burden has taken up the mental capacity, the time and everything for them to to be able to do and pursue those things that could be such a benefit long-term for you and your organization, right? To- totally, totally right. And, and we think that because employers are the biggest beneficiary of an educated workforce, they're the ones that should pay, right? And most of the companies that we've been talking to, they're, they're super psyched to be able to provide this benefit as either a differentiator, something to attract employees, something to retain employees. And, and a handful of them are just like, you know what? It is the right thing to do as well. And it's more than just a feel good, right? There's a tangible bottom line impact. But many of the leaders that we see stepping forward, ones that are offering this is like, you know what? I want to do it for the employees. And then when they get the notes back from the team, the HR team, the individual employees that get this benefit, it, it, yeah, it's such a game changer. And, and we're, just, we're just glad to be able to do this. 
That must be cool to actually be behind a team and a company that's doing something that you care about, that's having a direct impact on people. Uh, I'm curious, something you just mentioned is, and the fact that I think generally the way that companies are thinking about recruiting and bringing people onto the team is you have to provide value to them beyond just the paycheck. Yep. You have to motivate them and you have to treat them like human beings. And it's okay if they go on to other opportunities because I know so many people, like we know this woman that uh, works at LinkedIn and she left LinkedIn for a few years, then came back and now she runs marketing for one of the teams there. Sometimes that happens all those the time. are the strongest employees when they come back. Exactly. Right. And you mentioned that your Gratify, did you say they doubled their uh, the number of clients they had in the last we year? We did. In the last year, we doubled the number of customers that we have on the platform. And how much has the workforce grown and how much are you tapping into relationships that you've had in the past because as a CEO of a growing yeah. company I'm sure recruiting is one of your biggest jobs it, it is and so we're about 60 people today um, when the company was first acquired by First Republic back in 2016 it was about 25 ish or so people so we've roughly doubled the number of people now the nice thing is that we're essentially a software as a service company so it doesn't require a tremendous number of people and on our side, yes, we're trying to recruit the best people. We're trying to figure out who would be a good fit in this next stage of growth for the company. And and First Republic has actually been a fantastic partner. Maybe I'll just like um, park on that for a second. I've been part of five different acquisitions, ranging from the acquisition closes, we're going to repaint the walls, we're going to tear down your logo, we're going to put up our logo, to the Expedia TripAdvisor example where it was keep doing what you're doing. Even if you work with a competitor, if it's better for your business, you should do that. I'm like, really? You want us to do that? Yes, continue to do that. And so it's a pretty wide spectrum. And First Republic has been a tremendous acquirer and partner for us where they're, they believe in the mission. So it's all those things, right? They think it's the right thing to do. They think it's good for business. They think it's good for their employees. And as a wholly owned subsidiary of First Republic, you know, we get to solve one of the biggest problems in the market today. And so you know, who wouldn't want, wouldn't want to do that? Hmm. I'm curious, how hands-on is First Republic, and how does it work? You know, a company gets acquired, now you're running it. Uh, how often do you check in with them? I'm sure our audience is also wondering, like, the logistics or the tactical things behind what actually happens when you get acquired in a company. They clearly let you guys still run the company yeah, itself yeah. and make your own decisions, but how involved are they? Yeah, so um, very different core competencies, right? So First Republic, amazing client service. Right. Uh, we often talk about the net promoter score, so the NPS for First Republic. It's on the order of magnitude of tech companies like Apple. Right. The typical banking NPS is is less than half of what the First Republic one is. Right. Wow. So most people, when you think about your financial services institutions, like, do you love them? No, you, you don't. And and you know, I didn't believe it until I got there. And then now that I'm a customer myself, like I get to experience it. When I go in and talk to people, whether it's a consumer or a business or employer, a handful of them, the ones that have First Republic as their bank, they're like, I love my bank. I was <laughs> like, wow. And and it's, it's an amazing reaction. And so clearly First Republic has figured out how to treat its customers right and figured out how to deliver on high service. Now we're, because we're more of a tech software company, our core competence is building stuff that scales. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, when we go out there trying to figure out the market, I think where there's commonality is that we're trying to solve a similar kind of problem, right? Get people out of debt so that they're better off financially, then great, they can start building up their wealth, they can you know, buy a bigger home, you know, do all those things. And that's very aligned with First Republic. And 
where we are is that because we're innovating at the what can we do for that employer, that one-stop shop for employer, we're pretty pretty contained in terms of like that that software piece of it, right? And so it's a great win-win. And and when we work with folks within the whole company, we leverage assets where it makes sense. And when there is an asset that we have, that's a gap that we that we need to fill, we go out and we look for it. So it's uh, it's been a great partnership. But what about the decision making? Because obviously when you're running your own company, yep. uh, if you raise money, you might have a board and you have to answer to them. How does it work when you get acquired? And yeah, you're yeah. running a company within a company. Yeah, tons of different examples. So some sometimes it's super hands-off and other times you get so deeply integrated that you're essentially part of the larger company. When um, when I was at eBay slash PayPal, John Donahoe did a great podcast interview. It was a 15-minute long one with, with HBR. Uh, and so I think we're coming back to HBR as, as, a, as a great publication. But did a great interview, and he described acquisitions in three ways. One was... It's a completely separate thing where just acquiring for additional capabilities, right? So it's it's a, you let it run on itself. There's minimal integration touch points. And so that's one example. There's another one where it's an ad- adjacent market. So essentially do the same thing, but maybe in a different geography, right? And then the third example is when you just acquire a company for like raw either tech or talent, in which case then it's deeply, deeply integrated, right? Org structures disappear because you get merged into the, the whole. Where we are now is we have our distinct core competence, and so we're closer to the front part of that. So the decision making is day to day. We have a different uh, we have a different tech stack. Uh, we have our customer base. We know what we're doing with our customer base. We're trying to figure out how consumers behave. Uh, what do employers need? We're developing this one stop shop for employers. All those things are independent. And and the and the really cool thing about this, and again, you 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 won't know this until you actually get there. It is a crazy entrepreneurial culture. I would not have believed it if someone told me. So it's making a lot of sense to me why actually First Republic Bank bought Gratify. It, it sounds like a very entrepreneurial culture. And the fact that they're so entrepreneurial, I think, makes them well positioned to try and tackle this problem. And Vadim and I are really excited to see that private organizations are trying to solve the problem of student debt, of college debt, burdening our economy. But is it really possible for all of the burden to lay on private institution to solve this massive problem? Private enterprise is what we think, where we think the answer is. However, the government is doing something. There is legislation that's in both the House and the Senate that we fully support that basically creates a tax benefit for employers when they contribute to paying down student loans. And it puts it on equal footing as tuition reimbursement. So great bipartisan support. We're actually pretty optimistic that it will pass at some point. And when it does, then it's a major incentive for employers to create this program for themselves. And we have heard from a handful of employers that this will be the thing that tips them over. From your, in your opinion, how can other employers be a little bit more proactive in uh, even realizing that this is an opportunity? Because I feel like sometimes these things happen and then people don't take advantage of let's say the tax break. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's things like this, like create awareness about it. And from our standpoint, when we look at the typical penetration for what we're doing, we estimate it's maybe 4%. 
So four out of 100 companies offer this benefit. But we think between the tax legislation passing, the doubling that we're seeing in our customer base, and all of the macro forces in terms of more tuition, higher debt, that we do think there's going to be a pretty big tipping point in the near future that when all this falls, this will jump and this will basically be the 401k for millennials. Wow, that sounds really exciting. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, where there's a problem and a pain, there's opportunity. And I'm pretty sure that's why you got excited about the gig at Gratify. You're, they're solving a real problem and you're helping solve it as well. And Sergey and I are excited about spreading awareness about this type of thing, which is part of the reason why we even wrote about this topic in the first place. David Chang, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. Uh, you've had an incredible career and I think a lot of people can learn from you. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the show sometime later we'll dig into your story a little bit more as well but otherwise thanks so much for coming on the show and hope to talk to you soon thanks for having me